for some months, the emotional pain was so severe it became physical pain. You want to fall down on the ground and stay there. But you figuratively and somewhat literally, you have like hundreds of people standing shoulder to shoulder with you who want to help you. You can't just fall back down on the ground because then you're letting them down. You're not doing yourself any good. The only thing worse than the way that we felt would be if we didn't feel that way. Then what the hell was this all about? We're hostages to love and life. And that's our human condition. That's our human nature. What is up, you sexy bastards? It is your boy El Pirata, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. Today we're joined by a very special guest, Michael S. Hudner. Now, the backstory of Michael was that I was on the streets of New York asking New York millionaires how they got rich, and Michael said, oil tankers, and I was shocked. We ended up finding him online months later because his clip about wealth, and there's toxic wealth, went super viral. I think 18 million views at this point. We found him, flew to Rhode Island, and interviewed him in person, and he is such a gentleman. Now, the backstory of Michael, he's the founder and CEO of B&H Shipping Group. He owns and finances more than 140 ships, including oil tankers, bulk carriers, and offshore support vessels, whatever the hell those things are. Michael has done a lot of shipping, and he's done over $2 billion in transactions through shipping companies, while staying incredibly grounded and in touch with the things that really matter in his life. It was a really special conversation that I'm so excited for you to get to be a part of. People have loved hearing Michael's story. Before we get into the conversation, if you're interested in joining my book launch team for the upcoming book, Million Dollar Weekend, email me, book at okdork.com. If you want help on your business, access to the book before other people get it, hear behind the scenes of how I'm doing my marketing, accountability, and a support group, and just fun meeting cool people, come join the book launch team. Email me, book at okdork.com to join. We're closing the doors December 31st. Now, in this conversation, you're going to learn three gigantic things. Numero uno, boats. What is involved with being a ship owner and how do you manage oil takers? Two, billion-dollar financial wisdom. How does he navigate complex deals and get involved in billion-dollar ship deals? And lastly, how to avoid walking the plank, matey. Mr. Hudner, a.k.a. Michael Hudner, shares personal experiences of death of his son, his wife dying, finding new perspectives, and the balance between life, work, and passion. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more from a founder of a billion-dollar empire, check out our episode with Ryan Serhan. He is a real estate empire builder out in New York. You can find that as episode number 268 in this feed. You can learn more about Michael and his ships at bhships.com. That's bhships.com. Before we dive into the show, go check out tidycal.com. It is a tool that we built because we hate subscriptions and we love simple tools. If you want to do scheduling and or get paid for scheduling meetings, Use TidyCal as your Calendly alternative. So if you've been using Calendly, get rid of that stuff. Who hates, who likes subscriptions there? No one. And use TidyCal.com. Check it out. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Cody W.I. Is that Wisconsin? I love Wisconsin. Noah, I believe. I sure hope Noah knows what he's doing because I trust him so much that he's my number one business leader, influencer, best friend. I added that. Podcast. And I'm going to implement everything I can that he suggests into my work. Damn, Cody. I love you and every other one of you gorgeous listeners. If you want to shout out in a future episode, you know what to do. Leave a review anywhere online. We check everywhere. Love to call you out. As well, Cody, I got your back. I've worked at Facebook. I worked at Mint. I've made so many different mistakes, and I keep making some of them. And I help run AppSumo.com, an $80 million a year revenue business, which is beyond belief, bootstrapped, started alone in a basement in San Francisco, started at the bottom, now we're here. Not everything I'm going to teach you is going to work. I'm going to do my best to show you how I do things. And if you take action and keep learning and improving, it will work for you. So this is one of the craziest interviews 
we've ever done. So we did this video walking around New York that people that were well-dressed, that looked, might I dare say, wealthy, and asked them, what do they do for a living? How's New York? And advice for people like you and me. And we chatted with you and you said you owned oil tankers, which we never met anyone like that. And then you also talked about the money culture. And that clip, as of today, and it's probably higher by the time this video comes out, is at 17 million views. <laughs> and so tell me, do you remember us coming up to you? And then from there, we, we tracked you down, flew to Rhode Island, and now we're here to learn more about the oil tanker business, your story, and, and all your adventures. Yep. I'd forgotten about the conversation on the street. It was quite random. And I spoke to a bunch of friends of mine about the fact that we spoke. They said, oh, I wouldn't have spoken to us. I said, well, what can I tell you? <laughs> so you asked me what I did, and I said I basically owned ships. How come you talk to us on the street? Let's just start there for one second. I got remarried in October, having been married for 40 years and lost my wife in early January after a year of brain cancer. I got married to Delphine. She'd had a 40-year marriage, more or less, lost her husband to health issues. And I was in a wonderful mood. We'd done some music event. I think it was Carnegie Hall. And I was just really feeling great. And I've been through a lot of things. I hadn't been feeling that great in a long time. So when you said, would you answer a few questions? I was why not? You obviously need to be asking them. So I'm here to help. Yeah, it's Really appreciative because there's so many rejections and very I'm few. sure that's true. It didn't occur to me. But as I said, I asked a lot of friends of mine and I, I didn't ask. I told them about this encounter we had. Yeah. So I wouldn't have spoken. I was like, well, your loss. It was fun. The upside, the fact that I get to connect with you and learn more about your story. Now we get to share with a lot more people is special. You also had a comment, which we'll, we'll talk about later, which is about the money culture today yep. and about how there's maybe too much of it. Yeah. For people that don't know you in maybe 30 seconds or so, like, can you share who is Mike Hudner and your, your business story? I'm Mike Hudner. I grew up in uh, southeastern Massachusetts and Rhode Island around Narragansett Bay. And I have been a ship owner most of my adult life with uh, having organized the ownership and operation of over 140 ships, maybe 150, all types, but many of them tankers, particularly refined petroleum product carriers, a lot of dry cargo, crude oil a little bit of offshore service vessels, even a couple of very small cruise ships. And I did much of it for the first 15 years with a Norwegian partner who was based in Oslo and then London. I found myself enamored of real estate from a financial point of view. And I went to law school at night when I was doing that, not to practice, but I am a member of the bar in New York, retired. I had the idea you could marry real estate finance concepts, and international shipping projects. Nobody was doing that. And we did, as far as I know, the first limited partnerships in the United States with foreign flag vessels. And how much have you done in ship real estate or ship finance? Okay, so I never added it all up, but it must have been well over a billion dollars. I mean, it was a lot of money. Of ships that you've bought and sold? Yeah. The biggest deal we did was buying the Canadian Pacific fleet. That was 19 ships in one go, one contract. But we bought six ships from Chevron. I bought five ships from Marathon Oil. And then we did a lot of singletons. I mean, it's like buying office buildings. You don't need to buy a package of them. One ship is a discrete operating business. It stands on its own. It's nice to have more. While you're on that topic, can you break down the ship owning business model? Like specifically this Canadian one, you said it was the best deal of, of all time for you guys. Like what, what do the numbers look like and walk us through that? It covered the most ground the fastest. I mean, it was one transaction. It was 19 ships. 
and I've forgotten some of the numbers. This was in 1988. It was around 165 or 170 million dollars in a soft market. That was the price of the fleet. Uh, I mean, you can pay that for a single ship of some type. So the numbers can get big. The best analogy, and this will help any viewer, is to real estate. This is a hard asset business. We're renting space in a marketplace, and we're subject to the laws of supply and demand, and then some. Much greater volatility than uh, real estate, but it's comparable, and it's capital intensive. You don't get a premium, particularly for the value of your management. I mean, you're buying and selling assets. It's, everything comes back to a net asset perspective, not like price earnings and growth potential and all that. So you make your money with cash flow that you generate from the ships. And then if your timing was good, you may get asset appreciation. That is not absolutely necessary to have a successful investment. It's icing on the cake if you get it. But you could build a ship and have long-term employment and get it paid down substantially. The trick here is to reduce the risk as fast as possible and then hang on for either normal markets, which are quite rewarding, or super hot markets, which are spectacularly rewarding. I mean, the cash is coming out of these ships like water out of a hydrant. It doesn't last forever. And of course, leverage is your friend and your enemy like in everything, and it changes very fast. So so what were the numbers and the cash with this Canadian example? You bought 19 ships for 100 Yeah, but they didn't have any employment. We had six product tankers. That was our first entry into the tanker market, actually, from dry cargo, dry bulk. I don't have the number. We didn't buy a cash flow. We bought ships that had projected employment and projected cash flow. And if you're asking me what was the cash on cash or something like that, I don't really remember anymore. 1988, it was probably 8% with good growth prospects. And we were able to do an IPO is the way we financed that. It's a very complicated story. I even had a second mortgage bridge loan commitment from a Greek ship-owning family, which we never had to take down. We got the IPO done and didn't have to take down their money. But it was an unusual transaction for a Greek ship owner to be providing a second mortgage bridge loan commitment. And we had a Norwegian bank giving us the senior. So for understanding about how the business model of ship owning, you buy a ship and then it's delivering things between countries. Yeah. And then you get cash for delivering. Yeah. I mean, basically, this is seaborne trucking. We're carrying stuff from A to B. <laughs> the execution's a lot more complex, but that's what it is. Let's not get carried away. Yeah. It's not rocket science. It's very basic, prosaic transportation. Goods at sea from A to B. So you started your career out in real estate. Yeah. And like, how did you get into that? And then what kind of real estate? I got out of college and wound up being rejected by the Marine Corps for physical reasons. Okay. Peace with honor. And I thought I'd be in government service, let's call it, for a few years. And I was going to go to law school and I wanted to get into the real estate business, but from a financial point of view. This is because of somebody I met, the father of a girl I know who had done this for himself and he left the corporate world because he'd figured out how to buy a distressed piece of real estate with somebody else, and they were off and running. And he left the corporate world, which is an important thing to be able to do, to get away from W-2 income. I mean, if you've got people who are trying to figure out how to do this, you got to keep your expenses down. 
Yeah. It helps if you have an understanding wife. If you don't have an understanding <laughs> wife, it's probably better not to have a wife. <laughs> but that's like getting out of W-2 income. I think that's a really important point. Yeah, yeah. And what does that mean to you? Freedom. You're working for yourself. So now you're an artist in a studio. What do you want to create? That's how I sort of felt. But I had to do something because I had to eat. And I was, in fact, married at the time that I did it. And my wife was very understanding that I had an entrepreneurial drive. I didn't think of it as being an entrepreneur. I just thought of it as wanting to lead my own life. But in today's world, that leads to entrepreneurship. <laughs> Those are exciting times. You didn't know what was next, but the world was full of opportunities. How were you exploring that in real estate and kind of real estate? Well, we were a Wall Street shop. We were the first dedicated real estate finance shop on Wall Street. East Hill Realty was the, the subsidiary of Eastman Dillon and Union Securities. And then as employees, we got to own some of the stock. Our clients were real estate developers, big companies, a lot of Texans. I mean, Trammell Crow was a big client and um, Lincoln Property down in San Antonio, pitcher at Texas A&M, Bob Calloway. So we were all over the country and it was fascinating. Real estate finance and, and institutional investing in real estate was just catching on as an investment class. You know, it was kind of a dirt under your fingernails business before that, and it started to go wedge shoe. So we were at the cutting edge of that, and it was a great training ground because we were sort of writing the book about it. So you had a lot of freedom and uh, a lot of innovation. But I saw that as being applicable to shipping, and that appealed to me for my own personal reasons. So you did this till you were 30. And what were you learning from seeing these real estate people doing these like massive deals? They were only massive in the sense that it looked like huge money to me. I mean, all the numbers have changed so much. You can't get over it. I'll tell you a funny story. When the Canadian Pacific deal came up, we had done a public offering with mainly Maybon Nugent. And I had a friend who worked there and we used to talk about this. And I was modeling what he was doing with a company called Public Storage. It's a listed company, but they do all these mini warehouses. And they had a formula for raising partnership money and building the thing. And so I said, okay, well, why don't we take that formula and see if we can't shape it around and get somebody to invest in a ship with that. And his firm was trying to become more active in equity underwriting and not just bond business. They were really a very well-established bond house, but not an equity house. So we did this small deal first. It was like 25 million bucks. This was in the mid-80s crisis in shipping, which was the post-depression low in shipping. So that meant thousands of ships laid up around the world of all types, and they're dirt cheap. You could buy an older ship for practically scrap value. A couple of years later, the cash flow was about what you paid for the ship annually. I mean, you can't build a business on that investment thesis, but when it's in front of you, <laughs> it's pretty interesting. So we did that, and a guy in Canada read about it, and he called me, said, would you like to buy the Canadian Pacific Fleet? This is a very funny story. And we had just gone through hell to get this small deal closed. We wanted to do $30 million. We got $25. Maymon Nugent had to put in about $5 million to get it closed. They were trying to get established in this equity area. And so it was so close to not getting done. Then I said, yeah, that sounds interesting. I'm thinking to myself, you read about all these guys buying companies, they don't have any money, but they find it because they're thoughtful, they know how to structure a deal, and they've got the energy, the spirit, the balls, whatever, to go for it. And I'm not at, like throwing risk at the wall. I'm 
pretty sober. But that, I said, oh, yeah. I said, that could be interesting. I said, I don't want to say that we're in funds for it right now, but I think for the right deal, we could put it together. This is like, I had to go wash my mouth out. The bullshit was so thick. <laughs> anyway, so we got on to the Canadian Pacific deal, and it seemed like the company was run out of Montreal. They ran it like a crown corporation, so it was very proper and well-funded, and nobody was in a hurry about anything. But they ran the shipping side in London. So in London, I got the impression they were trying to hang on to it. In Montreal, they wanted it sold. And this was everything except their container ships. So it was dry cargo ships, dry bulk carriers, Handymax, Panamax, and then they had six refined petroleum product carriers. So we wound up, this guy based in, see, in Montreal or Toronto, I forget, but the home office was in Montreal. And he had kind of a pincer movement. He was pressing them in London and pressing them in Canada. So the home office knew what was going on, and the guys in London couldn't drag their feet long enough to see the deal go away. I often thought that the guys in London agreed to do the deal with me because they thought I wouldn't be able to get it done, and then they could put it back on the shelf for another couple of years. That's what I actually thought later when I saw the way it went. But we bought that, and one of the steps was that a Greek shipping family, a young man in that family who was trying to make his bones in the business, and he understood this thing so succinctly, it was remarkable. He said to me, we would have done this deal if we'd seen it, but we didn't see it. And you will either get it done or a year from now, we will have done it because they would take over the ships. I said, great. And we did it. So that was a big deal for me, really put us on the map. I mean, the first public deal that we did, I mean, that was an innovative structure and nobody had done that before. And they're going public for the ship or doing the like the equity fund? We did a, an equity finance that was an IPO. So what does that mean for just people who have no idea? It means that in that case, we raised $25 million of equity. In that case, it was a blind pool. We were going to take the money and then go buy ships. What people prefer to invest in is something that's committed you got a target sitting there, and they're giving you the money to execute it because it eliminates that uncertainty. But the best deals are done with a blind pool because then you can negotiate hard. If I have to try to get you to hold still for six months while I get a financing done, I'm going to pay you for it. And that's not really in anybody's interest, frankly, but people, they're going to get their money back. If you've got a blind pool deal and if somehow you can't get it done, you've got to give them the money back. Okay, cost me some fees. How did you convince people to give you $25 million? Like, one thing I've got to highlight is that whether you're buying housing or cars or real estate or businesses, you don't even have to have the money yourself. You can do what you do, which is fundraise. I had no money. I still had some college loans. <laughs> and you were able to raise twenty, which is amazing. I think that's a really well, great point. It's not amazing if you understand the substance of it and the fact that the world has a lot of capital looking for a home. And there's a natural, potentially stressful relationship between operating partners and financial partners. The financial partners need operating people. I mean, if you were a guy downtown in New York doing financial deals, you can't go buy a ship. You can write the check, and then you'll go broke. You won't know what the hell to do. And believe me, there's no good book to read about this because you're operating in a fundamentally hostile environment. I mean, it's salt water and all the vagaries of the weather, which can be boiling hot or Arctic cold. And you're running steel and machinery. I mean, good luck. So you can't do it as a novice. Somebody's got to know what the hell they're doing on the operating side. So we need each other. 
But then the, I'd like to own ships and keep operating them. And the, the financial people want to get out. That's an inherent tension in any industry, financial people, operating people. But they're looking for you. I didn't know that when I was a kid. But people have money and they don't get paid to sit on it. They get paid to invest it. That's available for everybody who knows what they're doing and works at it. What was your pitch? Do you remember how you convinced people to give you $25 million? We were at what was clearly the post-depression low in the shipping industry, all sectors worldwide. So it was a contrarian case. And you had to make the case that the world was going to continue spinning and that the surplus of tonnage would get absorbed. And the prices, if you're buying, we were buying a lot of things very close to scrap. So that's a pretty nice position. It assumes you are going to get the ships working, and we did that. We had a clever chartering operation that was very aggressive, and we did a lot of, instead of doing a ship full of one cargo, we would load up different parcels. We might have five parcels of cargo on a ship and take them to five different ports, like loading in South America and come up to the States, stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's hard work, a lot of very practical hard work, grinding it out, a lot of blocking and tackling. You have to have an investment thesis that can stand the test of time and not get excessively leveraged at the wrong time. I mean, leverage is sweet when it's working for you. It's pretty horrific when it's going against you. I mean, I'd seen that in real estate for sure. My Norwegian partner had seen it in shipping. That first public deal that we did, we'd done other individual deals. We had limited partnerships and some joint ventures with other people, more traditional ship owners. But the deal we set up with the investors, again, this was sort of drawn from the public storage model. All the cash flow went to the investors so they got their money back. And the cash flow from a ship is not like real estate. It can be huge as a percentage of the value of the ship. I mean, to look at 20, 30% cash on cash in a market that's moving up, no problem. So you're getting out fast. You want to get the ship paid down to scrap fast. Then you've got a lot of leeway if, to be wrong about the market. That's true for a lot of And things. if you're wrong about the market for 12 months, that can be disastrous. But if you can stand it, then it's more buying opportunity. Does that answer your question? Yeah. There's different areas I'm, I'm curious about. So you were in real estate in your 20s. Yes. And it was real estate finance specifically for like larger deals. Our clients were essentially real estate developers who were big and doing a lot of projects, garden apartments, garden office buildings, some office towers all over the country. And you were helping them raise finance for that. Yeah, we did both debt and equity. And then did you grow up in a, in a wealthy family? Because no. I think a lot of people will say, look no. at this person, he's got money now, and he probably had a lot of advantages. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but my family, my two grandfathers were sons of Irish immigrants who came here around 1850 to Fall River, and they weren't particularly welcome. There used to be signs in windows around New England that said, Nina, no Irish need apply. You know, it's a different world now, as it is for everybody. So my great-grandparents came here basically looking for food. I'm exaggerating, but they escaped the potato famine, went to work in the mills. And then, as I mentioned to you, Full River was a high, wide, and handsome textile town, cotton textile being produced. More cotton spindles than any city except Manchester, England, in the world. So there's, when you have primary economic growth, it creates all kinds of opportunities. And if you're smart and willing to work hard and take a risk, a lot of things can happen. So both my grandfathers, who were born during the Civil War, 
prospered and they started business and invested in business and this and that, the depression pretty much cleaned them out. So I didn't grow up in the world that my father grew up in. I have a bit the trappings of it because I went to good schools, but I worked my way through them. I went to boarding school. I went to a great college. But I mean, I was always working 20, 30 hours a week when I was in college. And I went to law school at night. So I was working all the time then. So that was like pay as you go. I'm blessed to be living in the United States. We all are. This is a fantastic country. I want to say that everybody don't ever think it isn't. For all the things that aren't good enough, this is the best place in the world for you and your kids, and it was for your parents too. Don't forget it. We got to keep it going. I mean, I worked my butt off and I took huge risks, but what an opportunity. I mean, China's a whole weird thing, this capitalistic explosion. And everybody has got a nickel or a renminbi, one, they want out now, and they can't shoot their mouths off, they go to jail. And where do you go, Russia? I mean, this is it. How does someone, though, I'm trying to imagine listening to the story, someone's viewing and they're saying, or I'm thinking for myself, you're in real estate, you're working in finance in New York, you're at a computer helping these guys raise some money, and you're like, I'm going to quit this pretty standard career. We weren't on computers, by the way. We had to book time on a computer from Blythe East Medellin later on. And, I mean, we were doing everything. You had a mortgage pay-down book and make all your calculations. They were doing things with the little desktop calculators. I'm trying to understand the transition from going in a, a desk job, a very standard New York finance desk job, into the distressed ship business. Because I think a lot of people have dreams. They say, I have a job in, in accounting. In we'll have that dream. They're all set. They just have to follow it. Yeah. I did. I, most people don't, actually. They have a lust, but they don't have a dream or an envy. I had a passion. I mean, I loved the marine environment, the marine world. I wasn't into it as an environmentalist exactly, but I loved being on boats, loved the ocean. I had a fascination for what it might be like to go over the horizon, I told you. And, and then I got enamored of financial structures which was just something innate in me. I wasn't a mathematician, that's for damn sure. But the, the logic of it and the way it worked was appealing to me. And then I saw the possible synthesis of those things. Nobody was doing it. That's attractive. I like that. And I felt like whatever I do with my life, I wanted to make a difference that I was there. So that kind of works against being a cog and a wheel. That didn't work for me. And my two grandfathers were entrepreneurs with very limited formal education. I mean, I don't know, seventh grade or something like that. As I got to know myself better as part of the maturation process in your 20s, I realized I'm not really cut out to work for somebody. It's not because I want to tell everybody else what to do. I don't have any interest in that, actually. But I don't want to be told what to do. And then you have to accept the consequences of that. And my father's father had a saying, apparently, because I never knew him. He died a long time ago. He said, the people who say they never had a chance never took a chance. His father worked in a mill, and he didn't have any education. But he was in a place where, if you're willing to work, there were things to do. You could catch the wave. And there are waves everywhere. Pun intended, because you work in shipping. Yes, that's true. How, so how did you meet this Norwegian <laughs> partner that is where it got started? And how did you meet him, and how did you acquire your first ship? 
Because <laughs> like you're working in New York Finance, and then you're now you're in Norway with a guy. Because there was no internet. You're not like on Google searching. So that's how did correct. you meet him? No, that's right. That's how right. did you get your first shift? It's interesting to think back to it. I had a college classmate who stayed on and got a combined law business degree. And then his first job was as assistant to the chairman of Burma Oil Tankers, which was a New York tanker owning and chartering company that was part of Burma Oil, which was later absorbed by British Petroleum, BP. And he and I discussed how we might pair up and find our way into the shipping business. And he would bring something from shipping because he was working in shipping. And I'd bring some of the investment banking stuff, principally not a Rolodex, but some know-how about deal structuring and trying to make a shipping project look as much like a real estate project and its financial characteristics as possible. You talk to Americans, everybody thinks they know the real estate business, and they're mostly right. But you're talking about ships, like, so how do you know where the ship is? Okay, we'll get to all that. But that, <laughs> a lot of people are dealing with that issue every day. So, And he had connections in the banking world. My friend, his name was Peter Elric. I had a ship named after him. He died in 1993. And we had breakfast one morning with a woman from what was then the chemical bank in the shipping department. And she worked with his company. And she, as it turned out, had financed an oil rig, a semi-submersible drilling rig for a Norwegian group. It was headed by a man who was a cousin of the fellow who became my partner. So the question to her was, do you have any banking customers on the shipping side who might be looking for some support to get through these tough markets? This was in 1976. And after some months, the answer was no. But then this fellow, Arvid Bergvall, was in town from Norway, and he went to see the chemical because he was a partner in that drilling rig. So he had an introduction there, and he wanted to look into the American capital markets for Norwegian shipping projects, and he had a taste for distressed investing. So Peter Elric and I met with him on St. Patrick's Day in 76 and talked about this, and then that kind of went dry or cold. It seemed interesting. And Peter was getting more and more interested in investment banking and less interested in shipping. And I was trying to get out of investment banking and into shipping. And then 77, as I recall, Harvard came over with his family for six months to see what was going on in New York, which was very enterprising of him. By that time, Peter he went to work, not immediately, but he wound up at Allen & Company. And then Harvard and I I went to Oslo in September of 77, and we talked about what it might look like to start a business, to shop around. And for the W-2 problem, I told him, I said, look, I don't have any money. I still am paying off college loans. I had just finished law school at night that June and taken the bar that summer, which didn't speak to my career because I was definitely not going to practice law. And I said, I mean, this venture has got to pay me something. I got a wife, blah, blah. And he had a family investment business, and they agreed to pay me for three years, enough to live on. And that was good enough for me. I, I was 30, and I, I was really itchy to get out and start trying to make something happen. It was a combination of I wanted to do something that was a creative effort and that was going to speak to these two passions I had, 
the financial structures and the marine world, and I wanted to work for myself. So we did that, and one thing led to another. First thing that happened, actually, Harvard made an investment before we started, or just when we were about to, and he, he put his foot down wrong. And so we had to bail that one out. <laughs> that was the first project we did, actually. It was one of these anchor-handling tugs floating around here someplace that work in the offshore oil fields. Then we went from there, just kept moving along, picking things up. Like everybody does if you start a business. I mean, you start, you do what you can, and you find you can do more. And things start to come to you because people know you can do something. And you know what you're doing better, how to go about it. You build the track record, and there you go. You have to live with a lot of uncertainty. If you're not able to do that, this kind of job's not for you. A lot of people, they want to know what they're doing tomorrow and next week. And I, I get that, but that doesn't apply to me. If you want to be an entrepreneur, <laughs> you got to be pretty flexible. I want to understand the ship things from a very basic level. So what kind of ships did you own? The first ships were anchor-handling tugboats that work in the oil fields, lifting anchors for drilling rigs and pipeline barges. Han, so the boat's only purpose is to be able to get the anchor for those things out and back in? Yeah, because those things, if they're positioned in a fixed spot, then they probably have eight anchors out. So they can't handle them by themselves from that vessel. So let's say it's a drilling platform and it's not fixed to the bottom it's anchored you got two anchors off each of the four corners of the unit and then you have a, a pennant that goes to the surface and you go pick up that pennant it's floating in a big steel ball you attach it on the boat over the stern and then you use the power of the engine to lift it up and then you move the anchor where it needs to be replaced and the marine unit will kedge which means positioning anchors forward of you and pulling yourself up to them. In other words, you carry my anchor out there and then I pull myself up to it on my winches. And that means also we've got to let go of the stern anchors or they've got to be brought up and brought to me because I can't get over those things. Like on a boat, I just go right over the anchor and take it up. So that's what you do. I know it sounds like child's play, but there's a precision of positioning. And this is before they had dynamically positioned vessels, the computer-aided running all these propellers, thrusters in the water that keep you right on position. Amazing stuff. And the weather window, if you put it, the most expensive vessel in the world at that time, I think it was called the ETPM 60 or something. It was a French pipe laying barge. And you can imagine, you got weather windows when these things can be moved and can work. And the value of the throughput of the pipeline is enormous, but it's got to be finished. So every day that you lose of getting open means that the pipeline is going to carry as much oil in its life, no matter when it starts. But you've lost the value tomorrow of that oil, and you've pushed it 25 years out. So the net present value of that is zero. People tend not to understand that. But anything you need to get open for the cash flow, you're in a hurry. So you've got to be able to get these anchors up and where they need to be lickety split so that thing can move and keep playing the pipeline. All right, so we have a tugboat for anchors. What other kind of boats did you own? Then we pretty quickly got into handy-sized dry bulk carriers. What does that mean? It means a ship that's, let's say, 17 to 33,000 deadweight tons, and you carry a whole range of dry bulk 
cargoes. I mean, the biggest dry bulk cargoes in the world are iron ore and coal. And those go in the biggest ships because there's a lot of, for instance, iron ore going from Brazil to the Far East, particularly China these days. So that's a real long trip. So the ships that, that, that do that most efficiently are as big as a super tanker, a very large crude carrier. That's a 250, 280,000 ton ship. But the small ones carry salt because a lot of grain gets moved. Also neobulk where you could be carrying steel products. Somebody's not, not, not ingots, but you could also be carrying scrap steel, fabricated steel. Just all kinds of stuff that moves. Building materials, cement, that gets a little bit specialized because it's a powder, really, and the, but it's in a bulk carrier. And the, you could carry other cargoes in a, in a cement carrier, but not at the same time. And then in 88, we bought the Canadian Pacific Fleet and got into the tanker business through the refined petroleum product ships. Those were ships that carried 37,000 deadweight, I think. I guess I was curious, how does like that specific boat make money? So like, oh, okay. So we, 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 like- we work in the market through a network of ship brokers spread worldwide. There are ship brokers to buy and sell ships and ship brokers to charter ships. So if you're a, a shipper with a cargo that needs to be moved, you give your requirements to some number of brokers. And then the brokers also maintain position lists from owners. So my ships are here at this time and there at that time, and they get matched up in that network. And this has been going on for centuries. So it's kind of virtual in the sense that you can't look at it, but it's quite alive. Yeah, this is, here, keep going on this. So you buy these boats, the Canadian fleet, for $175 million, I think you were saying. Yeah. And then how much does a charter make on like a petroleum tanker between two ports? It varies a lot. I mean, Let's just do the day rate. Turn everything into a daily time charter instead of a voyage rate because it gets complicated with no real significance. We were getting paid ten to eleven thousand dollars a day for those ships. That was eighty-eight, and the market actually went down. I think maybe to nine thousand, and these ships cost us fifty-two hundred or something like that a day to run for the operating expenses. Then your debt service is your debt service. I hope you got that right. Today, those ships have gotten bigger. They, on average, they'd be forty-seven, fifty thousand dead weight instead of thirty-seven, thirty-eight. They can carry. Okay. Yeah, same cargoes, and the rates today for a twelve-month time chart, the daily rate would be nineteen to twenty-one thousand. So it's a pretty big difference because. It doesn't cost any more to earn twenty thousand a day than it did to earn nine. Your operating expenses don't change, so you have a hundred percent operating leverage in your cash flow. Did you ever go on these ships? Did you ever like yes. help move the cargo? Because I, I guess I was also imagining you're like in this office. It's nice and you're relaxing, and you're just moving numbers. And then I was in New York first. Yeah, not as a discounting you, but also just the idea of like. A lot of times in business, you don't have to necessarily go and do some of the work, too. I visited a lot of ships, okay? I mostly visited them when they were in port, either loading or discharging cargo. I never sailed on a tanker. I sailed on some dry cargo ships, like along the coast of Africa, a couple of days. I've been to shipyards, and I have crawled all over ships in all the hard-to-get-at places where the maintenance can easily be set aside. It's like a bridge. 
<laughs> what, what was it like in the dry ship off the coast of Africa? What was that experience like? You're in the Indian Ocean. It's this swell that runs there all the time. So there's a lot of motion on the ship along the coast. And when you get into the, like, off Durban, you're in the anchorage and there's a lot of motion. But otherwise, it's salt water. And I've been on ships various parts of the world. We also took some single-hull product tankers and converted them to double-hull. That's a six or seven million dollar job per vessel. We did that in China. And we took three single-hull product tankers in a soft tanker market and a red-hot dry cargo market and converted them into bulk carriers. That's like a $20 million job per ship. I didn't invent it, but that was in our business, that was my idea. And I pushed it through and really, I took the risk. I'm the one who was on the hook for the risk. So if these ships are, you're charging 10, it costs you five, you make 5K a day profit, plus you have to pay your debt down. How would you guys make money on it? You'd make a little bit of profit and then would you eventually well, just try to sell? If, if you're right in your view of the market, the 10 turns into 15, 17, and you already bought the ship. How do you think more people can evaluate assets to see which assets will, they think will appreciate in the future in different categories? You mean sort of generically in concept? How does one yeah. do it? Like how could people think about it for real estate or if they're thinking about watches or if what you learn from it doing ships? It's raw supply and demand. So you got to figure out both sides of that for the sector that you're interested in or for any sector you want to look at. There's no shortcut. And you need a lot of data. You have to understand what the data means, which most people don't. And you have to have a sensibility. I mean, you've got to be able to have a sense that when too much is too much, even though everybody's saying, wow, this is a great market. And obviously, like when Lehman hit, there was no place to hide. On ships in general, so you've owned a variety of ships. Yeah. How did you go from owning one ship, this first one, to 140? We typically owned around 20 ships on the water. At one time, and when we had three public companies, because we couldn't expand them, we had these very tight constraints where you're paying out all the cash flow, no more share sales or anything. So you had to do another company. It was like doing a limited partnership, but it happened to be... On these different boats? They were fleets. I mean, we had a certain amount of money we raised, and we could invest it and create a fleet for that company. And we ran these vessels in commercial pools that we created so that all the dry cargo ships were in one pool and we pooled the revenue so you didn't nobody could get screwed like i'm going to favor my ship not your uh, ship that kind of thing and the same thing for our any lenders we had i mean they were seeing that we had a pool operation so nobody was getting favored or disfavored or dis disadvantaged and that gives you a larger commercial presence for whatever that type of ship is. So you present to the market with more ships. You control them. They have different financial interests. How do you get there? I mean, you get there. How did you get to do all these TikTok movies? I mean, <laughs> you get started and you learn how to do it better. And opportunities suggest themselves to it because you get a better sense of how you can make this thing work for what you're trying to do. You have a sense of who's keeping an eye on you and wants to see what you can bring them. That's just the way of any marketplace, isn't it? Yeah. It's just that we're outside it, and it leaks totally foreign. I get that. But if you were in Norway or Greece, it wouldn't look that way, I can tell you. Yeah. It's for America. We're not a maritime country anymore. 
We're a big naval power, but we're not a big maritime power. That's interesting. What, what were some of the most challenging stories or moments in this career? <laughs> I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. They'll spend some. In 1993, a ship that we owned left Norway with a cargo of crude oil for Quebec and had, it was in very heavy weather, by which I mean force 11, force 12, making only about a knot and a quarter an hour for speed. It left on, I think, January 3rd. On January 5th, the ship lost power, went aground in the Shetland Islands, spilled 85,000 tons of oil. That was a tough one. Real tough one. And nobody's in business to do that, I can tell you. But I, with several of my colleagues, we were on the Concorde in the morning from JFK to London, and then we had a charter flight up to Shetland. I got there that night. We had 29 people on the ship. They'd been rescued by two helicopters, one British Marines and one British Coast Guard. And then five people went back on the ship because a guy showed up in a small 3,000-horsepower supply boat and said, oh, I can, you get me a line, I'll tow the ship. I mean, it was a fantasy. The, the steel weight of the ship was 17,000 tons, and the cargo was 85. He's got a 3,000-horsepower engine, and it's like hurricane <laughs> force winds. But if he'd been successful, it was worth a lot of money to him as a salver. There were no salvage boats around. I mean, <laughs> forget that. So I got there that night. I met with the crew. I wanted to see everybody was okay and get their view of what had transpired because it wasn't clear yet why the ship lost power. And in the end, it was heavy weather damage. It was a freak thing. It was a bit like the Challenger that blew up because of a $2 piece that froze set off the explosion. So then in the morning, first thing I did was go see the local officials. There's a refinery at the north end of the Shetland Islands that deals with North Sea oil, and they always knew they'd have an oil spill someday, so they were well prepared for it. They thought it would be up there, not 75 miles south. <laughs> but I met with them, the Joint Response Committee, and it took Exxon, I don't know, four or five days to send anybody to Valdez in Alaska because their lawyers told them, oh, you can't go, you got to do this. I said, look, we own the ship. We have to stand up for it. And I don't think there's anything I can say that's going to change the legal facts of the matter, whatever they may prove to be, because we don't know yet what actually happened. I mean, we see the outcome, but we don't know what the causative chain was. So that put me in the penalty box for tankers with all my customers. They wanted to see the completion of the investigations, which were done by the British authorities with the Ministry of Transport, the Marine Accident Investigative Bureau, MAIB, and the Liberians. These, it was a Liberian flag ship. Most people don't know this in this country, but the Liberian ship register was created by the U.S. State Department, and it was on Fifth Avenue for many years. Now it's in Reston, Virginia. And it had to do with several things, but one of them was American foreign aid to Liberia and to get special pre-deployment rights in Liberia for military stuff we might have to take somewhere else. That was on the way to. 
And it was good. It brought the American oil majors into line tax-wise with the uh, foreign oil majors on their taxation. Anyway, complicated story. But it's a quality operation. They have a huge tanker fleet under the Liberian flag, so they have a lot to defend when there's a problem with one of their ships. Their, their investigation was at least as difficult as the UK investigation, just to tell everybody. Yeah. We got out of it okay eventually. In fact, I would say we earned a lot of respect because it was a freak accident and it was investigated and concluded as such. And there weren't any criticisms of the condition of the ship or the way it was run. In a certain way, I believe that over time, my personal reputation was enhanced by it because of the way we handled it and the fact that it wasn't a a big-time screw-up. It was shit happens. But I'm glad it's more than 30 years behind me. It was a tough time. My wife was at home with the kids living on 70th Street, and we had CNN was outside the door for three or four days. It was painful. But I was in Shetland for a while. I, I don't have anything to match that. No, that, that <laughs> sounds pretty wild on uh, yeah. many accounts. On the other side of that story, what would be what maybe the highlights of a deal or a shipping uh, business thing that you did? Because I think a lot of people out there are like, oil tankers, it sounds so, even to me, it sounds so foreign. And I'm just like, What's a good deal? Like you bought a ship for a million and now you sell it for 10 million and it's cashing out or? We had a ship. We'd owned it for three years. We paid $30 million for it. It was under contract to be sold for 50. We had a 10% cash deposit. We were earning 25 or $26,000 a day for those three years. OPEX of about 7,200. Lehman hit two weeks before the closing. The guy says, I won't be there. And we had a, we accepted a special purpose company as a buyer, which is absolutely stock standard what you do. They put up a 10% cash deposit. That's it. So we collected a $5 million deposit. The ship was worth 25 million at that point, down from 50. And by the time we sold it, we got about 12. That was the knock on effect of Lehman because the tanker market was bad. This was a combination carrier. The dry cargo business had been fantastic through the roof. And the tanker business was not good. So she's trading dry only. In the dry cargo business, you need letters of credit to make anything work. That's not true in the tanker business. The credits are much better. There are fewer customers, but they're mega. Oil majors, huge trading houses. Now, when we had the tanker problem, I mean, we're down to the third tier of charterers. That's not fun either. I mean, that's like everything's a rat race. The big guys wanted to see the results of this investigation. Just from a PR point of view, Anything happens with these guys, they're going to say, why the hell did you be working with them? So we got that behind us. I think that my bigger satisfactions are not deals that we did or shouldn't have done or got caught in, but we were innovative and we created a lot of benefits for the industry because we created certain types of financial vehicles that other people could then follow us on. And we got the New York capital markets somewhat opened to the entrepreneurial level of shipping as opposed to a handful of mega ship-owning companies. The relationships with people who worked for me, think of the shore people and then the people at sea, lenders, investors, not 100% investors, but most of them. And I created a modest brand in shipping for 
reliability and straight dealing and being a good commercial partner. It's profoundly satisfying. And I kind of lived out what I told you I was hoping to do. It made a difference that I was there. I, I can't tell you how satisfying that is. In the meantime, as I mentioned to you, my son became ill with schizophrenia when he was 19. He died at 23. My wife, after 40 years of marriage, during the 40th year, she had glioblastoma and died at the end of that year. I mean, I've survived good times and bad times. And I'm very deeply motivated to try to be helpful to people because of the things I've been through, they were so difficult. I'm not patting myself on the back. They were just difficult, and I was able to get through. I like to be helpful to people and encourage people to stick it out. Don't run and don't take shortcuts that you will regret because it's not worth it. We all have to live with ourselves. And that's a different standard for different people. I get that. But anyway, I had an incredibly rich life. Not easy, but a rich, rewarding, satisfying life. And I'm grateful to have been born in this country where these opportunities are found more readily than any place else. And this is a prosaic business. I mean, it's not like inventing Google or Microsoft. I mean, that that's not <laughs> my game. How come there's not like a FedEx or UPS of shipping, of boat shipping? Sure, what you mean. Is there a FedEx, like a brand that like, oh, everyone, because I think I've seen like Maersk or some of these ships. Yeah, the closest to it is the container lines. Yeah, they have all these, maybe 20,000, that's the the huge ones, 20,000 containers on one ship. Yeah. If, the, if your stuff isn't so valuable that you're going to pay to fly it, which is an alternative, but not in terms of volume, you ship it in a container, and it's not that expensive. I can show you an article. I just saw this, I saw it for the second time just 10 days ago. It's called 90% of Everything. And it's an article that was written based on a book somebody wrote on the fact that globalization and world trade has been possible because of the almost free cost of shipping between continents. So you can outsource to the place where it's cheapest to make it, and you can get it two weeks later. It's sitting in your desk or in your factory or whatever, on your showroom. The cost of moving oil and, and moving finished goods, electronics, it's nothing compared to the price of the finished stuff or the landed cost of a barrel or something. So that is FedEx. FedEx isn't alone out there. UPS, DHL. But they don't have boats, do they? They're not handling bulk cargo. I mean, it's a different world. One thing I wanted, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about is, because I think everyone, no matter what age, no matter where you are in life, goes through hard times. How did you keep going? Uh, when your son passed away, I'm sorry to hear that, and your wife, as well, you said one of your business partners passed or someone you worked with in 93. Like, what were you telling yourself? What were you doing to, to keep persevering? Some things are in the natural order of things. Some things are closer to that, and some things are way outside it. Those are the tough ones. Let me talk about the loss of my son quickly. He became schizophrenic when he was 19. He was a really brilliant kid. And his behavior changed. And he said, look, what the hell is going on here? And nobody suspected any kind of mental illness, but that's what it was. And it's progressive, so it got worse. And then he died in a car accident. He took my pickup truck and went to Cambridge, Massachusetts from Little Compton, where he was spending the weekend. 
which he shouldn't have done. He was okay for driving around town. I didn't want him on the highway. And he, I think, had a paranoid episode based on the observations of his driving from Fall River down to Little Compton on the return trip. And he lost control of the car, was killed. The schizophrenia was a lot to go through. My wife and I were joined at the hip to deal with his illness or to help him deal with his illness. And then when he died, we were devastated. And for some months, the emotional pain was so severe, it became physical pain. And you don't want to get up in the morning, but you get up, and then you're standing up, and you want to fall down on the ground and stay there. But you figuratively and somewhat literally, you have like hundreds of people standing shoulder to shoulder with you who want to help you. So you can't just fall back down on the ground because then you're letting them down. You're not doing yourself any good, not doing my son any good. And I said to my wife, Hope, I said, you know, we got to get this in some kind of perspective or context so we can live with it because this is torture and we've lost our lives. So I thought about it and I realized the only thing worse than the way that we felt would be if we didn't feel that way. Then what the hell was this all about? You're telling yourself how much you loved your child and the investment you made emotionally and time and giving up other things. It's all bullshit when you've got a problem like that. There's only one thing you're interested in. It's somebody's health. And I realized that we're hostages to love in life. I may choke up. Sometimes I can laugh about it. Sometimes I can't. And that's our human condition. That's our human nature. If you don't like it, get out. <laughs> but do you want to live a flat line? Most people, given the chance, would not say yes. So, I mean, what happened to us was an extreme event. To lose a child is an extreme event. And nobody should start thinking about it ahead of time. But it does happen. And you find out it's happened to a lot more people than you would have been aware of if you hadn't experienced it. So that was where we came out. And that was helpful in understanding what the whole process was. This is the way that we're made. And the more you love, the more you could get hurt. I mean, everybody's had a romance or something that didn't work out and you feel like shit, but you get over it. <laughs> I, you don't get over losing a child, but you learn to live with it. And we moved on from that and had the realization that we had been given, in a sense, a very um, expensive and painful gift from our son, which was you get your heart enlarged and become a lot more aware of suffering around you, people that are, have problems and have challenges and could use help. And you become not only more empathetic, but more proactively empathetic, where you act out your empathy by trying to be helpful to people. And I'm sure that, like me, if you knew you were on the sidewalk talking to somebody whose next move after talking to you was to go 20 floors up in some building and jump, there isn't anything you wouldn't say or do to try to stop that. So I stick my nose into problematic situations that people are having, and I don't care if they want to hit me. I mean, <laughs> I might be able to be helpful. So that's a gift <sighs> from my son. And it shouldn't waste it.
And my wife felt that way too, of course. And uh, How do you get through it? One step at a time. Hang on to your friends. Think of other people. Let people help you. <laughs> you can see how tough it is. Sometimes. But that's the way we're made. But boy, I'll tell you, when you have problems, whatever bullshit quotient you are carrying through your life, it gets reduced pretty close to zero because you've really come in touch with what's important and what isn't. I would like to communicate that to your audience. I think it's so important to be aware of that. When my son was ill, mental illness is still highly stigmatized in the modern world. That's unfortunate, but I understand it. But we had no energy for that. It was all about what can we do to help him to create an environment around him that was conducive to him working on his recovery. Because the first thing with mental illness, people are in denial. If you've got cancer or you've got a broken leg, you want it fixed. If you've got schizophrenia and you're delusional and paranoid, I'm all right, Jack. The smarter you are, the easier it is to blow people off. I can't imagine. Let me just start there. And I'm sorry that I'm, you had to go through it. We don't deal the cards in life. We have to play them. And everybody should understand that. I mean, I, we didn't have any period of, oh, why us, why him? This is the unfolding of the universe. You got to deal with it. And I wouldn't expect my son to have respected me if I folded up on him. I'm an old-fashioned person. And I thought I had two basic jobs, which was to protect my family and provide for them. If you see somebody who you think needs help, there's nothing you can say that's going to change the facts. So there's no silver bullet, and there's nothing you can say that's going to make people feel about something in a way they didn't feel before. So don't worry about it. Just let them know you're thinking of them. That means a lot. The weight gets a little bit loader just because other people know you're carrying it, if I can put it that way. I think a lot of our content is making money, living, but it's not even about making money. It's how to live a good life. And I, I guess I was curious how that probably put in perspective. Like, you're making all this money and you're losing money, but you're like, holy shit, this is the thing. I'm assuming this is what this of is. Of course. And this, the money it, and all these it hits, things. It hits you in the face. I mean, if it doesn't, you're fucked up. I, I mean, I, look, I don't pretend to be immune to that, but that's why I made my comments about the money culture. And especially for kids, I mean, it's tough on them. I see the kids today, they all think they should have what their parents have, and their parents might have spent a generation working for it. It's important to live a full life and a good life, and it's its own reward. And I think that it's nice to have some money in your pocket. I get that totally, but you can't destroy yourself for it. And I think you want to be careful not to burn out your marriage for it, which happens in a lot of cases especially in the professions, where time in is everything. One of the advantages of entrepreneurship is if you get things rolling, you can decide who you want to do business with. That's very good for dealing with the asshole quotient in your life. Like if you were in a big law firm, you say, well, I don't want to work with that fucking guy. Oh, hey, you want to get paid? Uh, we don't have to do business with that guy. And if that means we make a little less, 
we have a better life for it. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be utopian, but you got to think about the cost benefit of things. Anyway, moving here from New York, it's a lot different than living in New York, I can tell you. I love New York. There are wonderful things about it. And my new wife, whom I love, she's a real New York lady, but she's also a woman who's been sailing on a small boat in Greenland when she was two months pregnant, and her husband was stuck in the ice 200 miles away. I mean, so both my first wife and my current wife, they're women about whom those are the only two. <laughs> uh, they enjoy drinking champagne, but they also like to chew gum and drink beer. And I like that. We like, like nice things, and we like being pretty basic. How else have you enjoyed your money from your business? The one material thing I had a desire for, it's a slight exaggeration, but not too much, when I was younger, was to have a cruising boat that would allow me to get away. We had a little 16 and a half foot boat when I was a kid, five miles from here. Great. But then I worked on boats two summers when I was in college. So I got paid to learn how to run a big boat. I mean, 47 feet, 57 feet. One guy did nothing but cruise with his wife, and the other guy only wanted to race. So I responded to that. And I have a boat. I've got a 60-foot sailboat. I've had the boat for 32 years, and it was built for me and my first wife. In fact, I did everything I said you shouldn't do. I was working too hard. I was taking a lot of risks. In the late 80s, it looked like we'd split up. And then we got back together, which was the way it should have been. And as our Getting Back Together project, we already had two perfect children, so we <laughs> didn't need to go for three. And we had this boat built. And the fantasy of the boat was long-distance, relatively short-handed cruising, meaning maybe four people, not one person or two people. And I've been to Ireland on my boat. I've been to Labrador. I've been to Newfoundland three or four times. I've been to Cape Breton. I've done five Bermuda races in the cruising division because it's a healthy thing to do. But it, it, this is a fat family cruising boat. And that has been a very important part of my life, I must say. It's just, it's a centering place. Somebody asked me a couple of years ago, strangely, it never happened before that, said, what's your favorite place in the world? I said, oh, and I, I didn't have an answer. Nobody ever asked me that, and I never thought of it. I thought, I had this fantastic trip to the Antarctic for the millennium, but I can't say that's my favorite place in the world. It was the most memorable, but that's not what the question is. I've had some good times in Paris, but eh, not really. And I said, it's my boat. I said, I've had some challenging times on the boat, but I've never had a bad day on the boat. And if I don't like the view, I know what to do. <laughs> Go somewhere else. <laughs> so it hit me hard. This is only a couple of years. Geez, the boat is more important in my life than I'd actually taken on board. No pun intended. <laughs> and <laughs> my new wife, Delphine, they had two boats. They had the one she was up on in Greenland. I mean, literally in Greenland. She told me she had a ham hanging over her and a bunk and dripping on her, and she's sick with morning sickness. <laughs> but she finally connected with her husband because they were supposed to meet someplace, and he couldn't get there because of the ice. That's still faint. And my first wife, my late wife, Hope, grew up in the Bahamas, and her family had a small boat, and they were out in the islands all the time. And so she was happy to be on a boat. It's a nice way of life. 
Were there other things that you thought would give you more joy from business success? Like, or things that you bought or did and you're like, this didn't really satisfy me in the way that people might expect or imagine? I put it a little differently. Things that I thought might be fun to have or, I mean, I've been very philanthropic. When I'm flush, I'm very philanthropic because why not do some good? When I saw the lifestyle in New York, I realized this isn't really for me. And the value of having a lot of cash is that, I mean, my son, very smart comment he made when he was about 20, he said, money is energy, 20 years old. And I had seen having more capital as extra colors on a palette. So you're working on a canvas and you can do more things with it. But you don't have to have the money. We touched on this earlier. I mean, money is around. People who've got money or who run money are looking for things to do with people they think they can do it with successfully. So you can do both. But when you start seeing people who can only talk about money and people who can only think about money and they want to tell you how expensive the wine was that they had last night, I'm telling you, Drink it tonight, pee it in the morning. I mean, I don't care what you're dealing with. That's the story. <laughs> Nobody's doing it any different. And it's a question of your values. And I'm not trying to be preachy here, but it's just I think it's sustaining. And I think as a society of free people who respect the rule of law and value human dignity and human life and opportunity, how much money do you need? I think the whole thing's going crazy. And finance capitalism is a double-edged sword. A lot of goods come out of it because things have been done to create more value, more wealth, finance, more innovation. But boy, it's so heavily skewed now. It's just crazy. Can you elaborate on that? Because you mentioned the money culture is getting out of hand and it's not something we should teach children. And you, you said people are celebrities now simply for having money, but it says nothing of your character. Yeah. So can you elaborate on this theme and your feelings around this? I think that in American society, and it's not limited here, that the, the prime civic virtue of character has pretty much been replaced by celebrity. And you can be famous for having done something, but in our world now, you can be famous and considered a celebrity just for having money. So that's the difference from where I grew up. And I, I mean, this is in New England. I, I mean, it's different here, but I don't think it's healthy. And it's happening all over the world. I mean, I think all over the world. I don't know where it isn't. Maybe there's some Trappist monastery or something. <laughs> the money culture is running wild and nobody puts any brakes on it. In a funny way, I'll get in trouble for this. I thought that you could see this happening. Remember John McEnroe, the tennis player? Great tennis player. But he was also kind of a brat. I mean, he's like my age, or close to it. He'd get away with holy hell on the tennis court, you know, violate all the ethical, normal behavior, the courtesies of the game. And he got away with it, partly because I guess people were entertained and partly because he was so good. But that was like the beginning. You could just see if you're a celebrity, you get away with stuff. It's not healthy. Are you familiar with Viktor Frankl? You read his book, Man's Search for Meaning? Not in a while. I have a copy in my office. There was an article, somebody gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal and listed their five favorite books, and Frankel's book was his favorite. 
And he had a quote from Frankel. It's not long, but it's very powerful. And I had a funny experience. I took a course in college with a child psychologist named Eric Erickson. He coined the phrase identity crisis, then regretted it. And he wrote some amazing books about human development. And uh, he talked about Viktor Frankl, first time I ever heard of him. And I didn't read the book, but I thought it sounded fantastic. Man's Search for Meaning. And then after my dad died, and he was 93 when he died, and he lived in the home I grew up in, and he drove friends to the movies four days before he died. So talk about high-risk living. <laughs> but, I mean, everything worked. His mind worked, and every, he, he, but he suggested heart failure. That's it. So I was trying to clean out his house. I'm one of four kids. I'm the second oldest. And um, I'm the only one that sort of maintained roots here. He had books everywhere in the house. So I saw the stack of books, and on top of the pile, one of the piles was Man's Search for Meaning. And this is when I was first getting myself able to face starting to clean out the house so we could sell it, because it just was a, way, it was a letting go, and I just wasn't ready for it. I saw that book, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, this is my father's last gift to me. So I read it. <laughs> I said, Jesus, how could I have gone so many years without reading this? And it's all about our obligation as individuals, our necessity to find meaning in life. And that we should be the engine of that. We determine what gives our life meaning. And it doesn't have to be set in stone. It, you can change your mind about things. But you have to give your life meaning. And he thinks this is a human need. I don't see how you can get it from consumption or material things. I don't think that's possible. The first half of the book, practically, is his experience in a concentration camp in World War II. And so if you read the book, you might get the idea that, geez, I've read this story before, I saw a movie about this, and you wonder why this is so, why so much of this now? But he's establishing his bona fides for the theory of the psychoanalytic theory that he developed, which is called logotherapy, which is a therapy based on meaning, logos. So that's why if you decide to read it again, don't give it short shrift because he said, gee, I've, I've read this story because he's establishing what he's been through. And if he could do that, then presumably the rest of us might be able to do it because it's within human capability. How did your perspective on work and life change after your son and wife passed or after your son passed? I was glad I had the work because, boy, when you're out of kilter, I mean, I wasn't, couldn't function. Life had taken on a very funny feeling. Work is important. The structure of it, the continuity of it, the support, the engagement, the responsibilities you keep coming back to trying to meet, very important. So I was grateful for that. I really appreciated it. And it made me realize how special it was to have created a business and establish a, a modest but quality brand in the industry. And have a lot of friends and people who I got on with and we all respected each other and we could work together successfully. I mean, all over the world. It's very rewarding. And I appreciated that. Look, we were able to spend a lot of money on my son when he was ill. And I was very grateful for that because mental illness gets short shrift with the healthcare system. And my wife and I realized two things in particular, that we were blessed in that situation because nothing that existed 
in terms of healthcare potential, care potential, treatment potential, that we couldn't afford. I'm not being grandiose. I'm just saying, you know, there wasn't anything that was out of reach for medical treatment for him. So that was a blessing. And we also had enough, I don't know, intellect or sensibility to be able to wrap our minds around what the problem was and not get consumed by it, like feel lost, why him, why us, that kind of stuff, because that's not productive. And I know that not everybody is blessed in that regard because some people, they get submerged by it and that's, it just compounds the problems. So that awareness, and my mother had polio when she was a kid, she was about 12 and she was never supposed to be able to walk and she did, she worked hard, hard, hard. And she went down to Warm Springs, Georgia, where FDR used to go for hydrotherapy. And she eventually walked with difficulty. And then she was never supposed to be able to have kids. She wound up having four kids, all C-sections. And maybe in my 20s or something, I realized that it was fortunate for her and for me that my grandfather could afford something like sending her down to Warm Springs because the government wasn't paying for that either. So that gets back to provide and protect. But you don't need more shit. (laughs) (laughs) What advice or what things do you think some of the younger culture could work on to be mindful of? Like, you don't need as much shit. Let's maybe think about more who we're honoring. Get to know yourself. And there's a very interesting book. You're probably familiar with it. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, now deceased. He starts out with imagine yourself at your funeral. So begin with the end in mind. It's a good exercise. How would you like to be thought of? And what does that mean for what you don't do, how you behave, what you support? And I mean, I love sailing. I love being on a boat. I'm not like a yacht club guy. Let's go. I mean, I don't mind going down to the New York Yacht Club in Newport or in New York, have a beer with somebody. but. I don't need the clubbiness of it to be, I'm one of the guys. I don't have any trouble being by myself. I belong to a golf club. I don't play golf, but they've got tennis courts and my wife wanted to play, my kids wanted to play, so that's all nice. But I'm a bit of a loner or I'm happy being off by myself. And, and I like privacy. I am I'm going to be building a modest home on a piece of land that I started buying I started trying to buy it about a week after my son died. It's on the ocean and on the river, and it's a mile off the road. And it's mostly wetlands, so nobody can build down there. It's very private, and it's now it's an hour and 15 minutes from Boston. I've got almost 40 acres of land on the ocean, and I'm down there with the deer and the wild turkeys, and uh, I know it's a nice thing. I get that, but it's a project. I don't want a big house and what everybody thinks is the nicest part of town, and they're all sitting by each other. The location, the setting, drives me. Not the grandeur, because there isn't any grandeur, except nature. <laughs> With your career, and do you have any regrets? Like, you worked too hard? And was it all worth it? I don't have regrets about that. I mean, I can say there were times when work got in the way of things. It's a constant balancing act in life. And you can't do all things at all times. And I'm totally at peace with uh, how I live my life, recognizing numerous mistakes, 
and things that I don't regret them. I could say I would have been better off or the world would have been better off if I hadn't done that. But I did it, and I'm not here to flagellate myself. But I think you've got to be on notice. I feel like life is, you live it like an elastic band, and you can take it out to the limits, and you can hold it there for a while, but you've got to let it come back in. Then you can take it out again. But if you take it out too far, you're going to break it. And then it's done. And you can't live in here. So I think people have to be mindful of that. Then you can work it out. But if you try to do all the things all the time, I don't see how that works personally. And I have a pretty active life in the mind. And I like to read every night for half an hour to three hours. And so it's difficult to invest in time-wise the creation of more intellectual capital. And the busier you are, the harder it is. The more operational-type stuff you're tied up in. I read this interview with Warren Buffett, maybe in the last six months, and he said, I spend most of my time doing what I like to do. I like to read and I like to think. I said, that sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) I just have... Two more things. Okay. Two more things. For a lot of our audience that wants to make money, they they dream of making a million dollars. What advice do you have for someone who's a young person that would like to make a million dollars or more money? And do you recommend someone getting into ship owning as well? Shipping is not a particularly American business. It thrives more other places. So I think that's a problem here. Like if you were in Norway or Holland or some parts of London, there's quite a lot of prestige attached to shipping work. That's not true in the United States. That's a form of income. That's a form of compensation. So you might want to be mindful of that if you're a young person thinking about it. I mean, I was driven by a passion and a fascination with a couple of things, which I've said five times now. So (laughs) I chose to pursue that. I have zero regrets about that. One of the guys you interviewed, I happened to watch one of them or recently. I forget what the guy did, but he was sitting in a big house in California, I think. And he said that this business about loving your work, and so he thought that was of no account. But I thought to myself, different strokes for different folks. Because I think if you have a passion for something, it is a form of compensation. I mean, to some extent, you, you got to have cheeseburger money, but it is its own <laughs> reward. And it gets you through the hard times when you're just working because you're making money at it. Yeah. I went to boarding school, and I can remember I took up sculpting. I used to go to a junkyard in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and get stuff and weld it. I did some work that I thought was pretty interesting, and it got me very stimulated. I started being in bed at night thinking about this. I was also very concerned with what am I going to do with myself in an abstract way, but Nonetheless, I was concerned about it. And I said, I'm really getting off on this, but I'm not going to be good enough at this. I'm not going to have the drive to do this as a way of life. So I sort of got over it. I don't have any regrets about not being a sculptor, but it was a very (laughs) high energy thought at the time. And I saw the possibility. But I remember telling my father at one point, I said, you know, I feel like I'm doing right now what I was put on earth to do. I mean, 
I haven't felt that way every day of my life, and I haven't felt that every year in my business, but I had times when the level of satisfaction was so great and, and the uncertainties. I mean, the, you, you don't know what's going to happen, so you're just putting everything into it and being incredibly, I thought, for me anyway, creative. Everybody should taste that. It's a gift. You have to be able to reach for it. For someone out there who says they do want to make a million dollars, and that, that's their dream, like, what advice would you have for someone just getting started? What I really think is that you should try things and see what gives you pleasure in doing it and then consider following that, ramping up your involvement and ramping up your productivity in that area because I think that's a great start. I mean, your stomach tells you things that your brain won't let through. So you have to learn to listen to that. I think that's what people should do, find out what works for them. I couldn't stand the merit badge approach. You know, I'm doing this because I want a merit badge so I can then do that and get another merit badge, which makes you a conformist. I'm not saying people should be wildly nonconformist, but don't be afraid to be a majority of one. What is one story from running your own shipping company? Like, what's the story that comes to mind that makes you smile or that you're really proud of? I don't think it's just one, but I'll try to keep this very quick, huh? Can I tell you another story first? Sure. You know who D.K. Ludwig was? Daniel K. Ludwig? At the end of World War I, he was probably the biggest ship owner, non-public in the world. Had over 100 ships. Guy had about an eighth grade education. He had a project in Brazil called the River Jari Project, which was a piece of land on a tributary of the Amazon about the size of the state of Connecticut. He put that land together. He was a very far-sighted, big-picture guy. He had built in Japan two structures. One was a power plant and one was a pulp mill. And he had them floated over across the Pacific, up the Amazon, and set on pilings on the River Jari. And he was growing eucalyptus trees, a fast-growing tropical tree, to turn them into pulp. So he had this thing up and running. And then some Brazilian political people started trying to move in on him, and they wanted to get paid for this and that. And he shut it down. And he, this was in his later years. And he wrote off 500 million bucks, which at that time was a monstrous amount of money. This project was so big, it was on the cover of Time magazine with these barges coming in with the plants on them. Okay, so he died. His right-hand man was a guy I knew. When I was talking to them about some ships that they still owned, and might want to sell. And we're in old man Ludwig's office, and this guy is telling me this story. And one day, old man Ludwig says to him, so, the River Jari Project, what do you think of that? And this guy, who'd been a lawyer at one time and then became his right-hand man, he's sort of got a conventional view of this, 500 million bucks. Is, it's an unthinkable amount of money. Okay, so the guy kind of mumbles, yeah, he said, it was a success. And the guy mumbles a little more. He doesn't know what to say to his boss. He says, it was a success because we did it. Now, this is another part of the story, which is true. I was walking across town at one point on 59th Street between 5th and Madison, I guess. And across the street, I thought I saw D.K. Ludwig walking down the street. I was not in the shipping business at that time, but I was thinking about it. I said, oh, that's D.K. Ludwig. I said, 
I better walk across the street and make sure. This is like, I'm not going to rub the rabbit's foot, but I'd like to be behind the rabbit. It would just make me feel good. So he's walking down the street, and I hear him say to this guy, I'm like from you to me away. And I hear him say to this guy, you've got to be a bit of a dreamer in life. And I thought, oh, my God. You know the Princess Hotel chain? You're familiar with any of the Princess Hotels? There was one in Hamilton, Bermuda, and then he built one across the harbor in Somerset or someplace like that. He built one in Acapulco, modeled after an Aztec pyramid. So you go in, and it's open to the sky. There's a huge atrium, and it's in the tropics. And then they have a swimming pool that was half inside and half outside. So he started that business. He built them all with cash because that's where he was in life. He'd take a big risk, and he did the River Jari project with cash. So he wrote it off. Fuck him. So you ask me, my greatest satisfaction is not a single story, but the fact that I did it. I feel blessed that I tried it. It worked for me. I made a lot of friends. It's not like everything's up. It isn't. And I think some part of all of it, I don't think about this often because it's a little hard. I surmise my mother went through to walk and to have kids. How can you sit on your ass after that? I, mean, I owe it to her. But we really owe it to ourselves. It doesn't have to be a life of accomplishment, certainly not money, but we should all live in a way that's worthy of us. You decide what that means. Victor Frankl can steer you in the right direction. Thank you for sharing everything. Sure. My pleasure. That is a wrap. I hope you loved the episode as much as we did making it for you. Michael is not on social media. He's one of these people that makes a lot of money and has a great life and doesn't talk about it to other people. But you can check out his website at bhships.com. And knowing Michael as well as I know him, if you just message someone that you love and you tell them how much they matter to you, I think that would put a big smile on his face. So just know yo dog. Just say, hey, I love you so much. Thank you for being in my life. You matter to me. Before you go, tweet at me or Instagram DM. I love hearing from you. At Noah Kagan, let me know what you think of these episodes. It's always cool when a few of you guys send this. Most of you guys don't make it to the outro, so who cares? Just yodel, yodel Also, go join my newsletter at Noah Kagan. That's me, noahkagan.com. Finally, a couple of shout outs to the amazing team who make this happen. Thank you to Jason at podcasttech.com for always stepping up and delivering on time. Thank you to Jeremy, Cam, Tommy, Dylan, who's new, Jay, who's new, and Sylvie, who's amazing. I'm the dork team for all the magic y'all do. Have a tremendous day. Dun, dun, dun. What's your favorite vacation trip? 